Well, good morning again. Um, before we get into it, we have Bibles. If any of you need a Bible this morning, just go ahead and raise your hand, and Josh will bring you a Bible. CJ, good to see you, my friend. Some, hey, sometimes people walk in late. You've got to greet them. It's okay. Um, a couple things. One, this Tuesday, something really special has happened. Bernie and Patty are getting married. They're going to get married right here. Yeah. You're all, you're all welcome to come to that. It's, uh, it's 6.30. Yes? All right, 6.30. I, I keep making sure for me. Um, but 6.30, everybody's welcome to come. And we're going to celebrate their love and what God's been doing in their lives. And they're going to get married right up here on this stage. And so we're so excited for that. Um, let's see, Bibles. Oh, yeah, and Rooted. Uh, last night, we had an awesome just another amazing, every year, one of the things that we do is we have these events uh, put on by our, our women's ministry. This is the second one now. And what these are, are exposure events. These are people come to these that don't normally go to church. And so what we want to do is just simply expose them to Christian Christians. What's the number one thing that causes people to, to start following Jesus? They trust a Christian. And so we have these events so simply they could learn to trust Christians and be friends with them and find out a little bit more about church. And so we have a couple pictures that we want to show. And maybe after this night, they won't trust in Christians anymore. But, it was, you know, we had, it was, it was a night in Tuscany and it was an Italian dinner. And so we had to have our favorite Italian lounge singers serenade the ladies with Dean Martin's sway. It was quite a night. And then, obviously, the best, greatest chef in the entire world, Chef Vito, um, cooked a meal, made a pizza, and showed that. And so there's just some of the ladies who came this evening. We keep going here. Um, we've got uh, some more ladies that came. We also had, oh, there's some more ladies that came. There's a, there was over 50 of them. We had Let's Make a Deal. So Carol, did, Carol, what did you win? A new car. Oh, we had the little tool set. She won a little tool set. So she won something for Tom. Um, and, then, and then there was a, a comedian who came uh, to close out the evening. And, and, you know, it was just a great evening. A lot of people really got to connect deeper into, uh, in, in, into what, it, what a church is like. And so this is just such a great exposure event, especially with, you know, some of the things going on in our world. People think that um, we hate, people think that we're intolerant, people think that we don't love, and that's our transition to talk just for a moment with you about the Supreme Court decision. And I wanted to address that just for a moment. And we're not going to take forever on this. Uh, Last year, um, this was a question that was going on in our courts in the state of California, and um, believe it or not, as the pastor, I got a number of people asking me questions on this. And so I decided we did a little series called Awkward Conversations, and we talked about this. And so if you're interested, go back a year and listen to a full, almost hour-long sermon on this. Uh, We could hit it there. But here's what I wanted to say as a church. We are committed to agape love. And agape is this word in the Bible that denotes God's love for humanity and our love towards humanity, reciprocal love. And actually, I didn't plan this. I didn't know. I actually didn't even realize that this was a Supreme Court case this week. I knew it was coming up, but I didn't know it was so soon. And um, 
in my message today, we talked about the difference between agape love and the love that our world begins to define and redefine. But as a church, we're committed to love that's in the best interest of other people. And sometimes that's not always saying, oh, whatever you want to do is the right thing. We're committed to loving people what's in their best interest for them as a, what is according to Scripture. And that brings me to my second point, we're committed to Scripture. We're committed to truth in Scripture. We could do no other. If I start preaching something else other than Scripture, throw me out. You know, fire me. Really. Because we've got to be committed to truth. We have to stand on something. We have to stand on foundations. And while we will continue to love everybody equally, gay people, straight people, and transgender people, we will continue to love in bold ways. We will continue to love. We will also be committed to truth. And we can't call something um, not a sin that the Bible calls a sin. But also, we have to be understanding of what it talks about in Scripture about judging people. So as a church this week, people are going to be looking at your responses. And I want to caution you on too much judgment. Because what the Bible says is, what the, whatever you judge with, this is out of the book of Luke. It'll be, and a lot of people used to use this as an offering text, but it's actually a text in judgment. That whatever, however harshly you judge, it'll be shaken up, stirred around, and poured back right on you. God's a judge. He judged as out of his love and mercy. We're going to let him do that. So let God judge. Two, love people. Commit you to love people in bold. I, I, I'm going to ask you to commit to love people in bold ways. You may not agree with them. It may not be something you even want to talk about. But I ask you to love them in bold ways. Love does not necessarily denote acceptance or your blessing, but simply to love them in bold ways. There's much more that we could dive into on this subject. I mean, there is, we could literally spend days and days and days talking about this Supreme Court decision, but you know what? It seems like CNN and Fox News are already like a lot further ahead and all that. They'll, they'll talk about it until our ears bleed. So I guess we'll just let them do that. Um, but we have to be committed to Scripture. We've got to stand on the truth of God in this matter. Not to say we don't love people, but we've got to love people as well. Some of you may disagree, um, but we've got to stand with Scripture. So I'm going to pray for our country, for this issue, and then we're just going to dive right into our message this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with people who are grappling with what this decision for America means. God, people who are grappling with this idea of if I accept gay marriage, I feel like I'm abandoning God. And if I, if I don't accept it, I feel like I'm abandoning my son who's gay. Father, we are a people who have close family members and relatives who may be gay, who may be grappling with these issues. Lord, I pray that you would use us to be sensitive in this time to them. And that you would use us as a church to love people of this time. But Father, would you also give us a deep heart and a passion for the truth of Scripture? That there is sexual sin. And God, that you have 
called marriage to be between a man and woman, and even Jesus affirmed that in Matthew 19. Lord, so would you please help us to stand there and to be bold with that, but also to love people in powerful ways. So God, would you use us as a church to be the light of the world? Father, this is what you called the church to be. You called the church to be salt and light, to not take our light and hide it, but to let it shine. So, Father, would, we, we think that Scripture is the best way to live. What you have given us, your revelation to humanity, straight from your throne room. God, we think that's the best way to live. God, help us to live that way. And God, as we call people to that way of life, would you help us to do it in love and compassion and in kindness? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As people, like I said, I wrote a lot about love this week. As a people, we begin to center our life around love, don't we? Plato actually was the first person to really write this down and, and develop this thought. Is we do, we are creatures that essentially love, and we do what we love, right? And we, we organize our lives based around what we love. Now, here's a, here's a great example of this. This morning, I, I went to go pick up Emma, and I brought my daughter Emma to church this morning because my wife's home with a couple sick kids. We're driving to church, and we're going on a little trip next week, and so I said, hey, Emma, what are you going to pack for church? And she was like, well, there's Draffy, there's, which is a stuffed animal. There's Cece, which is another stuffed animal. And she just starts listing off her stuffed animals because, well, I may have told her that Toy Story was true and that that was not a fictional story and that after they go to sleep, their toys play. I just kind of thought it'd be fun to creep them out. But um, they don't really believe that. But, but essentially, they, they look at their toys as their objects of love. And so when you ask them this question of, oh, what are you going to bring? What are you going to take on vacation with you? It's, well, obviously... It's like, it's like if we, you would have left a pet or a dog at home for these kids. Oh, we have to take Draffy. You've got to take Cece because we love them. Who's going to hold them at night? Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to leave them lying around and make a big, big old mess? We've got to take them. Essentially, we live our lives based around what we love. Man is chiefly a creature of that of which he loves. And that is simply human nature. We organize our lives based around what we care about. And so today, as we go through Ephesians, the, the, we're in chapter 4. Actually, we're going to get done a huge chunk today. And guess what? We're not even going to read it all because I summed it up in your insert. Um, we're not even going to read it all because here's one of the things that the author, Paul, does. He talks about this issue of love and organizing your life. And then he gives you all these indicators of the transformed life. So here's what's going on. This, in this time, Paul is getting really practical with his writing. The first few chapters, he's intensely theological. What does God want to do? God wants to create a brand new world even. He wants to remake the entire, all of creation in starting in you. He wants you to start to look like the Creator, to look like Him. He wants you to take on His image. And in fact, Paul even says that God's building this brand new humanity out of all the world, that He's building this brand new humanity. And then he says He's organizing them into new communities that are redemptive. 
And then now Paul is getting really practical. So he starts with this intense theology and he moves to practical. But one of the things, before we get into it today, one of the things I've noticed about Scripture, because what Paul's about to do is lay out this big old list of moral codes. Like, here's the right things to do, here's the wrong things to do, and stuff like that. And I noticed the Bible does this a few times, but one of the things that it does first is it organizes that very list around love the first time that it does it. So let's Look at this real quick. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. In the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, this is what God says. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a way of simply saying that you have to love God first. I mean, this is thousands of year old um, scripture. And the way that the early Hebrews would have heard this is, Put your trust and put your heart in God first. Deuteronomy 6.5. This is when the Ten Commandments were retold to the next generation of people in the desert. Deuteronomy 6.5. I love, I love it here, by the way. I can see the screens. This is such a cool stage. The problem, that air conditioner vent doesn't hit me. We've got to change that. Anyway, sorry. Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in, in Deuteronomy 5, right before that, he lays out the Ten Commandments again. The idea is it starts and begins with love. Because as humans, we chiefly organize our lives based around that in which we love. And it's shown easily in our commitments, in what we do, and, and where we're at. We, we do um, what we make time for, because what we make time for is usually what we love, or sometimes feel obligated to because you have a boss that makes you do things or something like that. But when it shows up in our commitments, it shows up in our lives. See, if we love God first and direct our worship, our worship to the object of that love, then all the rest of those moral codes become obvious. So, for example, if we love God first, then you will never commit adultery. If you love God first, you will never bear false testimony against your neighbor. If you love God first, you would certainly not steal something from somebody. If God was put first in your life, which is, by the way, our number one core value at this church, if God was first in your life, then all these other things you just would never do. You would never even think about that. So even Jesus, before he even laid out his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that he says in Matthew 4, 17, and it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word repent means to change your mind. And what he's saying is, essentially, you have to understand, you have to realize that your way of doing things, your life that's organized around yourself, It's not the best way of doing things. So come over to my kingdom. This is Jesus' chief message. Repent. Change your mind. Come with me to my kingdom. I'll show you the best way to live. And that life was organized around love and conversation with the Father. And you could see that all through the Gospels. Jesus even was asked numerous times, and they tried to trick him, and they asked him in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, they, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? It was a trick question because there was a debate at the time saying, honor your father and mother was the greatest commandment. But Jesus simply responded with this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. 
All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the answer to this question, what pleases God most in our lives, is this kind of love. That we reorganize our lives around God. Around following Jesus. Now I've said this a thousand times before, but when your life is organized around sin, what are you going to get? Sin. Right? And when your life is organized around God, when your life is organized around coming to church and being with the body of believers, when your life is organized around Scripture, when your life is organized around love, what are you going to get in your life? Obviously love, right? Now, does that mean you're not going to go through hard times? Of course not. Of course you're going to go through hard times. Of course things are going to be difficult. But what pleases God the most is that we organize our lives around love. And again, we've got to be very careful in these times what we mean by love because that word has been redefined in a matter of 10 to 15 years. And we have to be very careful about redefinitions of words. Now, I'm not trying to equate anybody by saying what I'm about to say, but it's true. You can go back to the 1940s in Germany or a German dictionary today and look at words that the, the Third Reich redefined, common words, And there's a little mark in the dictionary next to them because the the Third Reich redefined them in order to push their agenda. We have to be very careful of this redefinition of words. I'm not necessarily trying to make a a link at all to the homosexual community. This is simply stuff I wrote in my notes before this ruling even came out. What I'm trying to say is we've got to be careful about what we mean by the word love. What do we mean by that? What is the deeper meaning of that? Because in English, we use the word love synonymously with I love Jesus and want to worship him and give God everything because God loves me with I love tacos. I mean, those are the same like playing field for us in English. There's no words to distinguish what the difference of this love. Oh, I love my wife. Oh, I love that new phone. I have to have it. Like, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. And so we've got to be careful about what we mean by love. And I want to talk about this for a second. Love, agape love, the word agape is the the Greek word that is used here. The word um, agape love, how much God loves us, is this unconditional, unending, unfathomable love. It's why Paul prayed in chapter 3. I pray that you would grasp how deep, how wide, how long, How stretched out is the love of God? I pray that you would even begin to grasp this because God's love for us is so unfathomable. Because God loves you so much, it's hard even for us to grasp. Because like I said a few weeks ago, our capacity to receive God is limited by my capacity. Or God's capacity to love, I'm sorry, is limited by my capacity to receive And so we have these limited receiver capacities. God wants to give it all to us, and we can go, I can only take so much of it at a time. So what is agape love? 1 John 4.8 says, God is love. And the word there is God is agape. God is agape love. Now, it's best seen in the distinctions. Now, in Greek, there's a bunch of different ways to say the word love. And let me just give you a couple of these. Philia, which means a friendship love. So like Richard, he's been my friend for years. I love him. That's a friendship love. I love him differently than I love tacos. I love him way differently than I love my wife. 
I love him differently than I love Jesus. But we're friends. We're buddies. I love him. Eros is a sexual or lovemaking type of love. And so when they talk about, um, and, and, and they loved each other in Scripture, and they use that word eros, it means that they loved each other in Scripture. Agape refers to the forever love of God's covenant with his people. C.S. Lewis defines it this way, the highest level of love known to humanity, a selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. That's the difference with agape love. Agape love indicates that God wants to do what's in your best well-being. And that as Christians receiving that agape love, that the way we act towards others, we have to act in their best interest and in their, their most well-being. Today, the word love means allowing people to do whatever they want. And that's simply not what it ever meant in Scripture. Agape love is acting in the best interests of others. The great church father Tertullian in the second century remarked how Christian love was different from the love of the world. And he said this, what marks us in the eyes of our enemy, and you have to remember, second century Christians were being thrown into the lion's den, literally being thrown into the arena with lions. They were being killed for sport. It was a fun thing. It was like, oh, what should we do today? Oh, let's go watch the Christians be killed. That sounds great. You know, they would go to their arena and watch gladiators tear them apart. They would throw people on the fire and they'd laugh. The, the world would just laugh about this. They thought it was great. And so Tertullian says this, what marks us in the eyes of our enemy is our loving kindness. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. That's what Jesus said too. He said, that's how they're going to know that you follow me. It's because you love one another. It's because you look out for each other and you do what's in the best interest of others. But our politicians, our pundits, our speakers around the world call us to this word tolerance. And I've got no problem tolerating people but the problem is, it's almost a cheap knockoff of love. Now, there, there's, it, it, the word tolerance has fundamentally changed in the last couple hundred years, so it means something totally different. But it's essentially this cheap knockoff parody of agape love. We're not called to merely just tolerate people. Oh, it's okay that you exist. I mean, that's really what we're saying when we say tolerance. I'm okay with you existing. Just don't make your existence rub off on me. You know? We're called to genuinely love people. Which means that if something's not good for somebody, you speak up. You say something. If something is good for somebody, you say something. That's great. You know, why do we pull people aside? Maybe you've done this with your kids. And said, that type of behavior is not good. You need to be punished for that. Because you're acting in their well-being. You don't want to hurt them. You, you, I mean, you say, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and it does. Because it hurts when you see your child hurt. You pull them aside, you tell them don't do that behavior because it's not in their best interest for the rest of their life to act that way. Pastor Earl says, you know, you, one of the things he always says is, you know, we've got to make sure that kids make good decisions by age 16 because that's when they're driving. I'll take that back to age 11. That's when their friends have more influence over you as a parent. How many of you guys are 11? Anybody 11? How many of you are older than kids that just in youth group? How many of you are older than 11? Yeah. 
So parents, their friends, have more influence in their lives than you, statistically speaking. So they've got to make great decisions by then. That's why, as parents, you make decisions to discipline your children. Because you want to do what's in the best interest of them. You want to help them to grow. You want to pull them out of situations that are not good for them, that are harmful to their well-being. You know, why do you take um, somebody who might be an alcoholic and pull them aside and have an intervention? You don't say, oh, we're just going to tolerate your behavior because it's tolerance. No, because we love you. This is bad for you. This is going to hurt you, and we want you to be better. We want you to have a better life than this. We want you to have all that God has to offer. So I can go on this subject for hours, but we kind of just need to get into the book of Ephesians right now. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to just look at verses 17 through 24, and then the rest is sort of this big old list that we're going we're gonna to just kind of grapple with. So Ephesians four seventeen. so I've sort of shared with you all that's up to this point, and Paul begins by saying, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so that as to indulge in every type or every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, <coughs> is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God. I don't think I can say that enough times. To put on the new self that which was created to be like God. God in true righteousness and holiness. And we're going to pause there in a second. See, what Paul's doing here is he's drawing this distinction between the way the outsiders live. And at this time, the church and the outsiders were pretty distinguished groups. I mean, the church was persecuted. It was looked at as evil in the, in the community of Ephesus. They were um, talked about in ways of uh, their incestual they practiced incest, which they didn't because they called each other brother and sister and were married to each other. And so they were like, oh, they're committing incest. Oh, they're doing cannibalism because they say they're eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. They're cannibals. And so they looked at this church as this evil institution that they didn't understand. And, but in reality, the church was living in the way of love Whereas the world was living in the way of just simply indulgence, indulging whatever they wanted. So Paul drew this distinction and he said, don't do what they do because you follow Jesus. You were called to something, you were called to something entirely different. And if you were just wanting to like, I don't know, memorize a verse or <laughs> write something on your hand or, or just remember something this week, I would say get in your Bible and underline verses 22 through 24. It simply says, you were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off your old self. 
those desires. That is not what our world says. That is completely living in opposition to our world, which says, whatever you want, do it. Hey, if you, if you desire that, it must be good, so go for it. Hey, if that's what you're thinking and feeling, great. Well, no, not always. I tell you, I do a lot of pastoral counseling, and, and sometimes people come to me and say, oh, we're just doing this, and, and I go, oh, how's that working for you? Well, actually, not so good. Yeah, we almost got, uh, we almost got in trouble on that one. You know, obviously, our desires are deceitful to us. There's this great quote by Richard Niebar, who, um, who is, is a professor, an old German professor who lived uh, during the time of uh, the Nazis. And one of the things he says is, man is most free in the realization that he is not free. Man is most free in the realization that he is not free. And what he means is that our, prim- our primal desires oftentimes control us. And until we get out ahead of those desires, then we will never live in the freedom that we were intended to live in. And so we've got to somehow get out ahead of those desires in order to live in freedom, in order to live in love. What he's saying is we have to understand and realize that many times our desires will control us until you make an effort every day to do what Paul is saying. And he puts this vital picture out there to put off the old self, almost like changing clothes. That's almost the analogy that Paul is trying to use here. That you put off the old self and you step into the new self. How many times have you like changed your life and went, that was the old me, I'm not doing that anymore. Many of us have thrown up our hands and said, hey, that was the old Dave. That was the old days. That was the old time. I'm not like that anymore. And sometimes you run into somebody from your old life, right? And they want to just say, hey, come back, let's do this, let's hang out. And the answer is no, not at all. I can't, that's not me anymore. This is why I tell people that it's important to regularly confess your sin, to ask for forgiveness. This is why I tell some other people to stop asking for forgiveness and ask for a miracle. Because you have some people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again who say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me? I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. And my answer is, you don't need forgiveness, dude. You need a miracle. You keep asking for the same thing. You keep going into the same old junk. You need a miracle. You need to say, God, please completely change my life and give me a miracle. God, help me to get out ahead of these desires. Help me to put on this new self Help me to live in this holiness that you're calling me to and help me transform these old desires. And then what Paul does is, as he goes on from this, he simply gives this big old list of what, like, how your life is indicated. And he's basically saying like, hey, you know what? If you're put off these old desires and you're living into this idea of the new creation, this is what your life's going to look like. So I didn't feel like we need to go over it verse by verse by verse um, but simply, I just drew you up a list. It's on the back of, the, of your uh, notes there. And this is what Paul says that are indicators of transformation. Uh, and I literally just copied these right off of Scripture. So these, this is 
essentially just copied pieces of Scripture without all the words in between. Speak the truth. You'll manage your anger in a way that doesn't lead to sin. Wow. Can we just pause there for a second? How many of us need to manage our anger in ways that don't lead to sin? Now, the Bible says you're going to get angry. Yeah. (laughs) The Bible says you're going to get angry. I mean, I need to work on this at times. So you're going to get angry, but how do you manage that in such a way that doesn't lead you directly to sin? Do not steal. And then actually it says, instead of stealing, do something useful with your hands. Build something for somebody. Manage your speech so that no unwholesome talk comes out. Remember what we said, speech builds your heart. It forms your heart more than anything, so we have to be careful what we say. And then it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And I I just wrote that in parentheses because the translation of that is a reference back to the time of the Exodus. And what it means is do not live an outright rebellion to God. So don't live an outright rebellion to God. Now, there's some of you here today who might be living an outright rebellion to God. You know that. I just say those words and you're like, that's me. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, Anger, brawling, slander, malice. And Paul doesn't necessarily say, oh, and here's how. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, here's how. But he kind of does. When really in the beginning he says, put off the old self and put on the new self. Take off that old junk and put on something new. Start following Jesus. Start reorganizing your life under Jesus' loving gaze. In other words, read Scripture every day. Begin to pray. Talk to God on a daily basis. When you reorganize your life around Jesus, the natural result is that bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice begin to come out of your vocabulary. It just comes out of your life. It's replaced by gentleness. Keep your own story of redemption close to your heart. He talks a little bit about that. Keep your own story, what God has done for you, in your own heart. But don't go relive it. (laughs) Keep it in your heart, what God has done. Be kind compassionate, forgiving. God forgave us. He expects us to relive that with other people. How can God ever forgive us on that day of judgment if we haven't forgiven all the people around us? If God says, hey, I gave you something really special, my forgiveness, but you refused to hand that off to other people. Why should I forgive you? So forgive Then it says, walk in the way of love. Keep yourself from, and he just gives this list, sexual morality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Keep yourself from that. Because why? It trains the heart. It trains your mind. And then it says, expose the deeds in darkness and have nothing to do with them. It's important to confess your junk. Because when you confess it, it can't live anymore. When you bring it to light, darkness can't thrive. So confess your junk. Seek to live in wisdom. Do not get drunk. Always be in control of your mind and body. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Speak, and then this is the the verse we open our service with today. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs in the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Simply, again, a way of training yourself for life. Then it says, always 
giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So always give thanks. Giving thanks trains you to be a thankful and a grateful person. It trains you to realize that everything you have was given by God. So the question today is, look at this list. Do you have signs of new life? If not, you may need a complete life reorganization. Maybe your life is organized around your old desires. And maybe you need to organize them around the life of Jesus. So where are you at in life today? If someone were to investigate your life, what would they find? This week, maybe you're looking in this list and thinking, man, I'm in trouble. This isn't me at all. The metaphor that Paul uses is to just simply take off the old life. It's a conscious decision that you have to make day after day after day to put off the old life. And every day when you begin to shed that little layer and little layer and little layer, you'll be amazed at how far you've come in three years or five years. I tell people this all the time. When I was uh, in high school, I accepted Jesus. And it took me about a year to stop cussing. Mainly because I didn't really realize it was wrong. I mean, I had this idea that it was wrong. But it took me about a year to realize that that's not what God wanted for me. When you become a Christian, it's not like all of a sudden you're good. You have to work at following Jesus more and more and more. And the further you follow Jesus, the more your desires will be lined up with his desires. So I want to simply invite you to pray and pray this. Maybe you need to sit, pray, Lord, I have a ton of old habits. Help me get past them. Maybe you need to pray, God, help me not to do things that dishonor you. God, help, maybe you need to pray, Lord, help me replace my heart with your heart. Maybe you need to pray, God, would you clean me and wash me? Maybe you need to pray, Lord, would you strengthen me? I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe it's one of those things. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this giant list Lord, we realize that we could do nothing without you. Lord, that you're the one who transforms the human heart. Father, and you call us to live our, our lives organized around you. So I pray that you would make an impact on our hearts this morning. Make an impact on our lives this morning. Lord, would you speak to us and help us to know your will and your heart. Help us to live lives that honor you. Help us to be the kind of people, help us to be the kind of church even, that makes this world happy that you made us and put us here. Father, help us to organize our lives around your love and do what is good according to agape love. Father, we pray for your mercy, for your kindness, for your gentleness as we move forward. Gently rebuke us, those who need rebuking. Lead us, those who need leading. Father, we love you. We pray that you would impact our hearts in a deep and bold and profound way this morning. In the name we pray, amen.